1: Welcome to the Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist Judy Human. Happy New Year. We're starting off 2022 with a special edition episode. Judy is joined by her co-author Kristen Joyner. Together they wrote Being Human: An unrepentant memoir of a disability rights activist, as well as the young adult version of the book, Rolling Warrior. Both books are available in print, ebook, and audiobook, which is narrated by Ali Stroker. In this episode, I step in to interview Judy and Kristen together to learn about their experience as co-authors and get some behind-the-scenes information about writing these books. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel
2: best, and let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Human Perspective. And today we're doing a special edition. Kylie Miller, who's recently joined our team, thought that it'd be really interesting if we did a discussion between Kristen Joyner and myself about how the book came about, our writing, et cetera. And Kylie is going to do the interviewing and it's going to be fun. Yeah. So first of all, welcome, Kylie. Thank you. And welcome, Kristen Joyner. Thank you. Kristen is joining us from New Zealand. And now I'm going to turn it over to Kylie.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so that's a perfect segue. I'd actually like to start with Kristen. I think a lot of people know Judy, and obviously the book covers Judy's story. So let's get to know who you are. Can you just kind of tell everyone your background and who you are? Uh, Before I met Judy, I had been working as president
0: of the Representation Project, which is, is Jennifer Nassibel Newsom's NGO organization that works on representation in the media. So I've been working for social change through nonprofits. Um, I had been for about 20 years um, on human rights and gender and education issues and the intersection of a whole bunch of different issues. And I was living in Berkeley, California, and I got a call from my agent, um, Jill Marr, at the Sandra Dykstra agency, literary agency. And she said, would you like to work with Judy Human as a co-author on her memoir? And at that time, I was taking the train every day, or the BART. <laughs> I was catching the BART at a station where I had to walk through the Ed Roberts Center. And I never knew who Ed Roberts was. So I would walk through, get my coffee and catch my train. And then when my agent asked me if I was interested, she asked me, would you like to meet with Stuart James, who was the head of the Center for Independent Living, which was housed in the Ed Roberts Center, which was what I was walking through every day to get the BART. So for the first time I stopped in that building and looked around and I realized for the first time there were these huge pictures on all of the walls of the 504 cinema, but I didn't know what it was. And I went up the elevator to meet Stuart James at the Center for Independent Living. And we had this amazing meeting and he was there with another person who's, um, who had had this idea of Judy telling her story and potentially having it be a book and a movie. John James Miller is his name. And we sat down for an hour and they told me the whole, you know, not the whole story, but the story of Judy and what she had done and the five of our sit-in and there were the pictures and it was like a whole world opened up that I had been walking next to my whole life in many different ways. And literally in that chapter of my life, walking through the BART station, and I never knew it, never knew that history. I never knew what happened. And my first thought was, how is it possible that I'm, you know, I've been working in human rights. I've been working on representation issues. I've been working on these issues and I never knew this story. It blew my mind. And so Basically, I said uh, yes. I a
1: hundred percent want to work on this project. So, what is your background in writing? Like you talked about your activism side, but do you have a background? I assume in writing. Was this your first novel that you've worked on? When I met Jude, I'd been writing for a few years and
0: enough so that you know I had some articles published and I had a book um, proposal that was being. It was enough that I had met Jill Mar and had an agent. The And the book proposal that I wrote ended up not selling, which Jill had shopped for me. And that happened just before she introduced me to Judy. So when Stuart James and John Miller, and then there were a team out of L.A. who were two film managers, approached Jill and said, do you know any writers who might be a good fit for working with Judy? She thought about me because she knew I was sort of like at the nexus of writing and activism.
1: So no, it was my first um, book. I guess we got kind of your side of how this all fell into place. What happened on your side, Judy? How did you decide that you wanted to write a memoir? And how did you decide that you specifically wanted a co-author?
2: Well, people had been talking to me for many years about writing a book and I never had any desire in trying to write a book myself. I consider myself pretty good with oral words, but I am very nervous about writing. So it was very exciting actually although I was skeptical as I always am about whether or not there would really be a book and would anybody wanna work with me on writing it? Would anybody wanna publish it and what would happen? So when Kristen and I met first on the phone and then Kristen was coming to DC and we met in person. And for me, Kristen as a non-disabled person who someone admittedly didn't know anything about the disability rights movement, That in and of itself was something I really had to think a lot about. I liked the fact that you were honest in what you were saying about not knowing about the movement, but also that you were very interested. And I liked the way you expressed how you were interested in the process that we would follow for writing. And so I thought, well, if they're recommending her, and obviously there was an interest in trying to get a book published that they wouldn't be recommending somebody that they felt wouldn't be able to be a good writer. So that it was really on my part and your part for us to really see, did we click? Mm-hmm. And I think um we did click. I mean, I was hesitant for a while. I think it was really about how the process would work because we didn't live in the same area. So, Kristen, as you were saying, you were living in the Bay Area and you were coming back and forth for a period of time for some work that you were doing here. So for a number of months, you'd be back and forth and we met a number of times in person for a good number of hours. And then you also went to New York and met some people, friends of mine. And so, yeah, I just think it was beginning to work well. We were beginning to understand each other better. And then- Kristen left the job here, so then we were working between San Francisco and D.C., and I think Kristen was doing research, and and we were spending a lot of time talking about my life, my story, how we might want to develop it, and then there was a big surprise when Kristen told me that her husband got a job in New Zealand, (laughs) and they were going to move to New Zealand, and honestly, I was like, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I think we were invested enough. And Chris was like, oh, don't worry. We'll be able to do it more than 24 hours distance from each other. (laughs) And she had three kids and um, complexities of multiple families and blah, blah, blah. But I think at the end of the day, fortunately, I think we produced a good product.
0: Yeah, I think I, my husband got offered a job in New Zealand and we moved to Auckland and, and that's why I'm here. And um, but by that time, we've had spent spent multiple weekends, you know, all day Saturday or Sunday together. And I had hours and hours and hours of in interviews and had interviewed people in California and New York. So by that time, we were really more in the stage of writing.
2: Well, I was still in the stage of getting to know you through your writing, like you were learning about me and my story, but we hadn't yet started writing together, right? That was a whole process in and of itself. Talk a little bit about your writing style. Like when you write, what do you need to do?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Judy would say we need to write. And I said, okay, well, I'll call you in two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Because we were in the habit of talking, having long, long conversations. And also I had an advantage because I was interviewing Judy. So I was learning a lot about her and she wasn't learning as much about me. But yeah, so then I would have to disappear and and write a draft and then share it with Judy. And then we would talk about what I'd written and said, is this accurate? Does this seem right? And Judy would say, no, 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 it's not
2: But I think that was a really interesting part of this, getting the right tone. So Kristen would send me documents, I would read. But then as time went by, I also was getting more involved in actually editing or trying to get the writing more in my voice. And I think, you know, for me, what was really valuable about working with Kristen and getting like a rhythm, I think for both of us, Me with a no, 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 and (laughs) Kristen with, you don't understand, and (laughs) I have to do it this way, that way, and no, people won't like it this way. But I think that ability to kind of go back and forth a lot, which happens in any kind of a collaborative approach, was very valuable. It was valuable for me, not only around the book, but also in being able to become more assertive, needing to really speak about what I liked and what I didn't like. And I'm sure this is true for Kristen too, defending what you were doing. And in some way it was this, I mean, it wasn't a conflict conflict, but it was really being able to trust each other enough that we could have honest discussions, which from my perspective really did produce some very meaningful aspects to the book that so many people relate to, like the level of detail that we got into in many areas people totally relate to. And that was not easy to write. I mean, let alone express and develop. What was it like working with me?
0: (laughs) I miss it. It was such um, a creative process and really stretched, I think, both of us. One of the things I was really attentive to when we were doing it was trying to figure out what the story was, sort of like, you know, in a memoir, you're basically making an offering of the wisdom that you've learned that's like a universal, a universal learning. I remember really sitting back, so we had, had had all these interviews with Judy and transcribed all of them and all of this information, and, and I sat back and I was really trying to wrestle with what some of the universal kind of like lessons were, along with all of the incredible history and events that happen and how to tie sort of braid that all together so I think that's what was going on in my mind so sometimes when we had conflict it was when it was when I was trying to tell that story and Judy wanted more often the argument was she she felt like I was leaving too much out you know names or you know especially I think I remember we had a around the committee's You know, if they were because you know this kind of work, you have to have committees. That was sort of the magic of it. But at the same time, I was really worried because we we had gotten rejections right before we got Beacon before Beacon Press came on board. And one of the rejections I remember really clearly was. You know, this is an amazing story, but I fail to see how you can make a story about government policy interesting.
1: Wow. Yeah. Come on. I know.
0: But that really stuck in my head because I feel like that was speaking to the bias or this idea that people have that government or government policy or that it's dry um, and uninteresting. So I was very concerned about. I guess what do I say to you? We're going to lose the reader. You know, I don't want to lose the reader. <laughs> So some of the most interesting work, though, came out of that tension, because then Judy would say, well, we have to have all these committees. Immediately, my brain would go, committee equals boring. (laughs) But then I really sat down and I really thought about it. And I said, oh, wait, no, it's not really about the committees. It's about power. And when you really think about it, the committees represent sharing power. And when you think about it that way, then committees are very
1: interesting. And just to clarify, you're talking about the 504 sitting committees, you had people working on the medicine committee, the uh, food committee, right? All the different, yeah. So
0: even before, so when Judy Judy and the other activists at the Center for Independent Living, before they even organized the the seminal protest, which was the 504 protest, they were also organizing other protests before that. And they were in a habit. One of the ways they did that was they had committees within the Center for Independent Living, but the committees that worked with other activist movements. So um, with the Black Panthers or with the um, various civil rights groups and different committees were responsible for different things. So even just to organize, to spark and to make happen, the 504 sit-in, they had to have committees. They had to have press committees. They had to have a committee meeting with the larger group, which was- We always had
2: (laughs) committees. So in New York, when we set up Disabled in Action, there were committees. So there was the committee that was protesting the Jerry Lewis telethon and the hunger strike that went on outside the telethon and the demonstrations that we had against Nixon. So whether the word committee was always utilized, there were lots of different working groups. And one of the areas that people talk about with me all the time when I'm doing interviews is how impressed they were with how we work with so many different groups like how did you keep people engaged not just during the 504 demonstration but along the way who did you work with how did you work with them i think that was then and still maybe is more unique than i would like it to be the problems are significant and so you need many different people with different sets of knowledge to be able to come together and work on solutions and i think That's a lot of what this book and others really, you know, demonstrates that the need to work together, work across disability, work beyond disability communities, what we learn from other movements, uh, all of that coming together really has been influential in my life for sure.
0: Well, I think that that was one of the main universal lessons or offerings that I thought Judy had. It's a lesson about leadership and power, because obviously when you're having it, when you're organizing a movement or you're organizing a protest, you're not paying anyone. It's all voluntary. So what was it in Judy that in her leadership that got 150 people to commit, you know, who left their homes and their jobs and took a risk, you know, that their relationships would fall apart or that they would lose their jobs or that whatever they were doing with their lives at the time that they walked into that sit-in was going to be on hold for the next month. You know, what was it that made them stay and commit to be a part of this larger thing? And one of those things that, and I think it's, this is a thread through Judy's whole career is that she's really committed to sharing power and that it's not about one sort of like charismatic leader. And that was the thing. It was like this consortia of leaders, and Judy was one of them, and Kitty Cohn was another one at the sit-in who really believed in sharing information, being transparent, making everybody feel like they were essential to what was happening, that they were a part of every single decision. And uh, I've worked in um, investment actually, in uh, impact investment. So I've worked with corporations, And there's a real feeling of like disdain in a way for committees. They're sort of like, they're ineffective, inefficient. So you just need a decision maker to make the decision and then tell everybody how it's gonna work. Well, sure that can work in a corporate setting where you're paying everybody but that does not work in a democracy and it doesn't work in a voluntary activist movement. And that was one of the real like magic things about what happened.
2: And I think, I mean, Kitty Cone definitely was cut from that cloth. And I would say that sometimes I might not have been as open as I ultimately was because Kitty and I would talk and she'd say, you know, we've got to do it this way because we've got to make sure it's this one and that one and the other one. You know, so we did it. And, um, you know, I define myself as a networker. I think one reason why people, they'll ask me to give like a definitive answer on something and frequently, I want to talk to other people as I'm coming to a decision on what I want to say.
0: You were saying the combination between you and Kitty Cone. And Kitty had this sort of like, she wanted to make sure everybody was okay all the time and everybody had all the information. And she was, that's my understanding of her.
2: She was a strong leader and designer.
0: Yeah. And Judy, you were the one who, were, who just sort of, I feel like stood up in front of everybody and said, this is not Right. I am going to say this is not right and not stop until people listen. And that was magnetic, I think. I mean, that kind of determination and insistence on justice is actually rare when you're speaking truth to power and you refuse to back down.
2: Yeah, I think one thing that people say about me is that I consistently am working on these issues where other people will come and go, be really strongly involved men take a break and do something else, then get back involved. And I, to the chagrin of my husband and other people, I don't kind of go to the side and say, okay, for the next year, I'm going to do something else. It kind of (laughs) doesn't happen that way. But I think, you know, overall, the experience that we had, I got to meet her kids very briefly. You'd be getting up in the morning and having breakfast. And we were working away, you know, and the seasons as they went by. And of course, the seasons are reversed when it's our summer it's their winter she was going off skiing and we were or whatever and we were doing something here so the whole thing was a little bit of a comedy as well as a little bit stressful right I mean our timelines were stressful life was going on you know my husband was sick at one point and something was going on in your family you were having a move or something and so it's like we had to make it work because we had deadlines which we pushed a little bit but not too much because we always knew if we pushed it too much the book might not get published
1: and that's what I wanted to ask next what was the timeline of the process like when did you guys meet and then the book obviously was published early 2020 but how long did it take you guys to write it and at one point in the process did you actually move to New Zealand like how much of this was done completely virtual between the two of you
2: most of the book was done virtual because you were either in San Francisco or in New Zealand.
1: Was it a four or five year
0: process overall?
2: I think we either talked at the end of 2016 or the beginning of 2017. And I think it might have been 2017 in like May or June that you came here and we met and agreed. And then I think 2017, you were here until December. I mean, back and forth, right? Yeah. But then I think in 2018, you moved to New Zealand, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: The book was finally done in what, September or October of 2019.
0: That's right. So the first year was research. I accessed the interviews um, at the Bancroft Library at the University of California in Berkeley. They have a whole oral history project on the 504 sit in. The University of California also had some of the footage from various documentaries in their archives. You can't check it out, but I could go and watch it on campus. And of course, I was living right there, so I could envision where it was all, because the epicenter, right, was Berkeley. And then the protest happened in San Francisco. Judy grew up in New York City. I actually lived in Brooklyn for a period of time, but I did go back and meet a very close family
2: friend. So I went to see where Judy lived and the synagogue she went to. And yeah, so... One of the interesting things about this, and, you know, we're talking about with the movie also, is people look at Berkeley as the epicenter. But for me, if I didn't have New York, there would be no Berkeley. (laughs) New York really, to me, is where things began. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Berkeley was active in doing things, but Berkeley was, at that point, not really that involved nationally. And people on the East Coast didn't know anything about Berkeley.
1: Right. But it was pretty serendipitous that Kristen was there while writing exactly. this story. Like it's it was set there, you know, that's kind of it was super fitting. Yeah, it was amazing.
0: Yeah. But anyway, then we and then we wrote so it was the research for the first year and then writing for a year. It feels like that was a longer project. Oh, because there was there were breaks when the when our agent was taking it to the market and uh, we were negotiating the contract with Beacon. So that
1: added time to it. Right. And then the young adult book came into play. So was that a quicker process because you guys were adapting what was already published?
2: Yeah. I mean, the the young adult version took a couple of months, right?
1: Actually, the young
0: adult version was written in six weeks.
1: Wow. Yeah. And who kind of was the idea behind writing Rolling Warrior? Why did you want to make this story also for young readers?
2: I mean, I think Beacon approached us. Beacon felt that there was a book for younger people, and I think in part it was because the book discussed my life from when I was younger, and so there were areas there that younger people would be interested in. And then I think also it was Beacon that proposed putting together an advisory committee of young people, right? And Kristen had, you know, wanted to be working on because she's also got teenagers.
0: Yeah, they were definitely a big influence. That was the big challenge was to figure out how to translate kind of these adult events into a sort of teenage voice that would appeal to nine to you know twelve year olds. The advisory group was fantastic for that.
2: Yeah, I think the advisory group was something that Beacon had done once before, but this advisory group was uh, not only made up of what your daughter was eight or nine. Yeah, nine. And then uh, Jasmine, who's my neighbor, she was, I think, 16. And then there were a number of other people on it who were in that age range, Mm -hmm. the eight or nine to 16. And how would you describe the meetings that you had with them?
0: I would write and then I would send them some pages to read, and we would meet once a week. And they were very, they became very outspoken. It became very friendly. They liked to make fun of me. You know, they they were very clear. They said, you know, there were a few times when, for example, Judy and the protesters have left. They, they're they at the sit-in in San Francisco, and they fly to Washington, D.C. to meet with senators and high-level representative in the U.S. government, and there's an exchange between the activists and the senator. It was Senator Cranston. Um, I wanted him to say what he would say in his language, but I wanted to figure out a way to translate that into you know, kind of like teenage speaks so that it didn't come across as sort of like kind of policy wonky. So I did this kind of device where, you know, he said this, what he meant was blah, blah, blah. Right. And I said it in more colloquial language. So I did that for each time. And the advisory group said to me, yeah, I thought that was clever the first time, Kristen, and then just got tired. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, cut it. They're like, do it here and then cut it. Another time before Judy and the activists take over the building, they're outside, they're having a protest. And um, no one knows they're going to take over the building, except for Judy and Kitty Cone. But uh, every time a speaker gets up and speaks, they're leading the crowd in this chant that's like, sign 504. The chant gets referenced in interviews, but I don't actually know the full chant. I've never actually seen it or heard it. And so I, I was just writing it. But I was writing it like "Sign 504. Now we need our rights. And not really thinking how it would translate actually in the actual moment. And then one of the youth advisory boards says, I couldn't, I just couldn't get that rhythm. Like sign 504. Now we want our rights. Like they're just like, it is wrong. <laughs> anyway, and some of them had disabilities and some of them didn't. And they're coming from all kinds of different perspectives, which was all good.
1: hmm it's very cool. So, to end this interview, I actually have some questions from readers of Being Human that I'd love to ask you. So, first, I have a question from Nat Stag from Instagram. How did you decide what to include and what not to include about your life? And I think that could still apply to you, Kristen. You know, you you researched all this information about 504, about Judy's life. How did you guys decide what to include and what not to?
2: You can see in the book that from the beginning of my life through the 504 demonstrations is where a substantial amount of the book is. And then from after that to when we ended the book in 20 what 15 or something, uh, it's much more consolidated. So I think in the agreement with Beacon, they pretty much gave us a broad outline of what they wanted us to be writing about, right?
0: Yeah, we originally thought the book would just focus on the sit-in.
2: Mm. they wanted more
0: they wanted uh judy's childhood and then also the aftermath so we included that but in terms of the actual events what i tried to do as the um bringing sort of the writerly sort of perspective was saying if the story is about a few things which is about it's about that we're all born with a sense of belonging right because because we're human and because Because it's innate, we have the right or the gift of belonging, right? And Judy felt that on her block. Like she really felt connected to her friends and family. And nobody ever told her she didn't belong until she was five years old and told she couldn't go to kindergarten. And then it was like she was just thrown out of this sense of belonging. She was told, you don't belong. And what I felt was that anyone, Whoever was told that they didn't belong for whatever reason would connect with that feeling. And then she spends a fair amount of her childhood. They keep telling her, the world keeps telling her, you don't belong. You don't belong here. Oh, no, you don't belong here either. And so many people would just say, oh, I don't belong here. Maybe they're right. Maybe I don't belong here. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the problem. And instead, because of who Judy was and because of her family and friends, she turned around and said, no you're wrong, I do belong and you need to change because you're the problem, not me. And then she comes and finds a sense of belonging again and never gives it up.
2: I mean, I think this is a very important discussion for me because part of the work on the book is a blur. Mm. And I think in part because Kristen was new to it all, this kind of an analysis is actually exactly what I talk to people about now. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I was as much discussing it exactly this way before the book, because very much now, what I do talk about is how really at an earlier age, we were beginning to recognize that we weren't the problem, but that that was a big and still is a big part of why do we want people to use the word disabled? It's because people need to see themselves not as the problem but that the problem has solutions and everyone needs to be involved with it. So that information also really resonates. I think that I'm getting more thoughts about how to expand that concept of I'm not, we're not a part of the problem and other people need to take responsibility for being a part of the solution, not just for us, but for them, because they may well temporarily or permanently acquire a disability. So, you know, we need to be thinking very differently as a society about how we want to be able to remain in the in the world.
0: So, yeah, exactly. So, which I saw in terms of in, what we included and what we didn't include, one thread was we wanted it to include the build up to this belonging arc, but also this arc of disability history and the events and that difference between um, what people with disabilities are being told, which was that it's a medical problem and it's their problem. And that's why they can't participate in the world. And then there's, it's not a medical problem. It's an attitude problem.
2: It's about the world changing. Well, it's discrimination. I think that's also what I talk about now. But I mean, my presumption is that for you, having come into this world through this book, that it also does enable you to think about disability in a way that you likely wouldn't have thought about earlier.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah.
2: Has it shaped any of your day-to-day thinking or actions?
0: I think that when we started writing the book, I didn't realize, but I was unconsciously, I assumed that if I didn't see people with disabilities, it was because they had a medical problem that made them not able to access wherever we were. So I think I was very much of that mindset. I had sort of breathed that in like air, that assumption. And so because I had, was someone who had thought that, I wanted to systematically include enough information and tell the events for anyone else who thought like me to understand that that wasn't the issue. And this is why that wasn't the issue. And this is why it was important that the world understand that. And so I see it all the time when I'm just walk, you know walking around town or if I'm in a venue, I'm always noticing if there are people with disabilities and or not, I'm noticing accessibility. I told you, I read an article about a boy who fell because of an inaccessible school. And I got involved with with the disability activists in New Zealand because I was so appalled by that.
2: Yeah. Another important part of this was Kristen as a non-disabled person, me as a disabled person. So I think we also learned. And for me, it was sometimes, you know, Like really talking to you about you need to get the disability aspect of things. And it was something that you realized that you did. I learned from her about writing, you know, the writing styles and how I had to step back and let her go do Mm -hmm. her thing. There was a lot of learning that went on.
0: Yeah, definitely. I learned a huge amount. I mean, I was learning every single day about not only history and the disability rights movement, but what is life like? What is it like to be in the shoes of someone with a disability every single day in every single part of their lives? That was a huge learning and I'm so grateful
1: for it. So maybe this is a good follow-up. Another question from a reader. This might be a little bit more geared towards Judy, but I'd be interested to hear what you have to say too, Kristen. Marlene Brockington asked, what moment do you have a different perspective on now than when you were writing? So did writing this book at all change how you viewed maybe some of these things that happened in your life?
2: Yeah, I think as I was saying, I've been able to put my disability lens on my life and in its totality and to really be able to try to get in the moment about how I felt at different points in my life. And, you know, I feel like I'm still working out what I could call now maybe as anger, disappointment. You know, when many of these different incidents happen, when I was younger, I wasn't prepared for it. And when it happened a number of times, like being denied the right to go to school while I was five. So what was I going to do? And my mother didn't know any better. So she tried to resolve. But I think what I've learned is that I try to deal with things, even if they can't be resolved completely, I like to deal with things in the moment. So when something is happening, to try to respond right away, as opposed to leaving and then coming back. Now, I don't always do that, but, you know, it depends. I think for me one of the uh, other important parts of the book is really emphasizing that our writing this book and my telling my story is meant to be an example for other people that they need to tell their own stories. And maybe they don't wanna write about them or even discuss them publicly, but they need to know what their private stories are. So then who knows, something may come up and they can begin to talk about something more publicly because they've thought it through as a story in writing or words in their head. Telling our stories is very important because then you realize that there are so many people who have the same stories. And I think the more we realize that we have the same stories and that one of the reasons we need to be together is because we also want the same outcomes, right? We don't want to be seen as the problem. And that's a very big deal. And so those are some of the things for me that have been important.
1: All right, last question and it is from Mallory Alice and this is for both of you. What parts of the writing process surprised you the most?
2: That we got through it. (laughs) That That you got through it? (laughs) Yes, that we got through it, that we produced a good product, that people like it, they want to read it and that people are still wanting to read it. And I would say that it's it's going from a slow simmer, hopefully simmering to boil.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, up until the last minute, Joanna, our editor at Beacon, was emailing and saying, where is the book? And Judy was saying, we have to change this. We have to change that. And I was saying, no, we're done. (laughs) So the fact that it's done is amazing.
2: (laughs) Now, both books, and we've also got large print, and we've also got the audio versions. And um, we're also looking at the possibility of Doing some additional writing in the future.
1: Oh, can you talk about it or no?
2: Not yet. Not yet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exciting. And that's good news for our listeners. They'll have to stay tuned.
2: So, to our listening audience, thank you so much for being with us today. I hope you've enjoyed a retelling of Kristen and my experience in writing the book. And for those of you who are writing or jointly writing, love to hear what your ex- experiences have been. And I'd really like to thank Kylie for this idea. Thank you both. Thank you, Kristen.
0: Thank you. It's been awesome.
2: That history won't forget us or try to our pain.
1: Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at judithhuman and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.
2: Pulling up to Mickey D's Just for Drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot